I'm not popular, and tonight it's just me and you here for an intimate conversation discussing three 16th century Italian paintings, Andre Osman's Call Me By Your Name with its Luca Guadagnino film adaptation of the same name, plus Mike White's phenomenal second season of The White Lotus. I really couldn't be more excited to talk about all of this, so... Well, we are coming to the end of 2022 here, and just like every year around this time, I'm beginning to contemplate what's shifted in culture, what's different in my life, and just considering how fast-paced my lifestyle is in Tokyo, keeping track of all of these changes and what's going on gets uh, a little intense. It feels like I've been uh, hit by a car just trying to swallow all of this down. But one thing I can say for certain that uh, wasn't happening to me last year is that since September, I literally cannot get Italy off of my mind. All of a sudden, I am thinking endlessly about Dario Argento and Pasolini films. I'm eating bottomless plates and bowls of pasta and spaghetti, I'm humming Italian opera to myself, and, of course, HBO has been beaming these beautiful sunset images of Sicily to me every week. I just don't think that this is coincidental. I feel like the serial experiments lane wired frequency has picked up the tone of Italy for some reason and is now just broadcasting it in the form of art and media straight into our heads. Although Europe is clearly not the continent that ended up winning my heart, I will say that I've always had at least a little bit of an interest in Italy. I think it it starts from when I was quite young, because I remember being fascinated by the Italian boys at my summer camp who had been shipped off by their mothers to learn English in the States And then when I was in high school and taking AP Art History, I fell deeply in love with Italian architecture and Caravaggio and uh, Artemisia and just all of these hyper-violent sexual images of Christian fervor that I, I found to be very enticing and perverse. And then as I got even older... I had a very dear fraternity brother uh, who was emigrating from Italy, and after that I met David, the co-host of Gang Bang, who I've always found very charming and original and a truly unique personality. So basically, just from a young age, I've always felt a friendly presence of the great nation of Italy around me. So it's not lost on me, because I'm very in touch with my artistic interests and what that forecasts for the future, that all of a sudden, not only am I being drawn back towards Hataria, but it seems that there is also a general current and pulse that is reflecting that same sentiment. 
Now, 2022 also happened to be the year that I think the COVIDian era finally started to come to a close. It seems that uh, in America, it's totally over. But in Japan, I mean, I still wear a mask on the train. You know, (laughs) people still kind of think about that kind of stuff. It's not all the way done. But I can feel the general tone of things beginning to shut it down. And I've always characterized COVID not so much as a state of political warfare, but rather one of emotional terrorism. The regulations put on people were not so much for a political benefit, I think, but rather uh, serving in the great ache of contemporary society in which connections and genuine earnest feelings towards others are shut out and divided by plastic walls at all costs. And I haven't seen movies like Terrifier 2 or Tar, but Just from the way I'm hearing people talk about them, including major publications like my beloved The New York Times, I can kind of tell that people are getting tired of not only Covidian-era politics, but they're also getting tired of liberalism and wokeness and the asexual boundaries and parameters that have been obsessively put around us to keep us as passionless and asexual and vapid and blank as possible. I feel like it's finally starting to move a little bit in the opposite direction, even if it's just a millimeter. As I mentioned, December is always the month where I'm thinking about how the last year has unfolded. So I'm sharp enough to notice that my realization that this uh, sort of woke period is finally reaching its climax and uh, fallout thereafter, I'm sharp enough to realize that this is happening simultaneously with my reborn interest in the arts of Italy. Because what are sort of the stereotypes that you imagine of Italy? For me, it's obviously like Mario, like pasta, lasagna. It's, you know, that kind of stupid thing. It's the godfather. But it's uh, also sex, and wine, and Roman sculpture, and Dionysus, and people having cigarettes, lying in bed with each other for four-hour lunch breaks, constantly thinking about their relationships with other people, and getting their tits out, and rolling around on a Tuscan beach. Not to mention, Italians are famous for their romance and their adroit skill at fucking... Not that I've ever had one, so I can't back that claim up, but I'd like to imagine so. But even all that aside, if you look at, you know, most of the popular Italian media that's made its way over to the West in the last, you know, 50 years, all of it is pulsating and bleeding and throbbing with a real lust for life. I mean, between the futurists and Ezra Pound's contos, you can just see this incredible ache of ejaculatory fascist art that just spills out and splatters its seed everywhere. And I feel like it means something that while I'm noticing that this, you know, stupid woke period is finally reaching its end, that I'm also seeing these kind of Italian aesthetics resurface in my own soul, as well as in popular media. But to be honest... I don't know exactly what it is about these Italians and their culture that makes their 
art so truthfully born out of real human drives? I'm not quite sure exactly what it is. So I was thinking today we would reach all the way back into the 16th century, look at what they were doing back then, see some uh, both radically fictionalized and kind of truthful ideas about it presented more recently, and hopefully sculpt it all together into an idea about what's happening at the moment. Because I feel that underneath the enormous bright blue firmament of Italy, and all of its barren trees, and its sun-bleached beaches, and its people who can't stop screwing each other and getting their tits out and rolling around in their sex all day for hundreds of years. I just have a sneaking suspicion that all of this is somehow relevant as to how we're going to make something beautiful in this dark present into a more fantastic and passionate future. Imagine that maybe a few of you are familiar with a little Italian painter named Titian. He was one of the most famous painters of the Renaissance, uh, known by one of the final lines of Dante's Paradiso as the sun amidst small stars. He was famous for his adroit skill in a numerous amount of themes, including portraiture, landscapes, uh, mythological subjects, as well as Christian ones, and his art, whether you know him by name or not, is something you've 100% witnessed before. When I was very young, I actually vividly remember seeing a certain painting of his at the Louvre in Paris. Uh, it's known by its title, Woman at Her Toilet, and it features a beautiful woman with a large mirror behind her being held up by a man. She has one single index finger pointed towards her face and her fantastically lit white skin with only a beautiful blush of red above her cleavage. And uh, my mom famously tells me a story that I got a boner looking at the Mona Lisa when I was like eight years old or something. But funny enough, I barely remember seeing the Mona Lisa, but I do remember seeing this single Titian painting because I was terrified of the mirror behind this female subject. I think myself among uh, people who are actually art historians have always been somewhat confounded by his works because in a lot of ways they are somewhat conventional, if not brilliantly made. I mean... The detail on these 16th century paintings and the manner in which light moves across a body and the specific perspective and the finery of the detail in women's clothing and every small facet of these paintings is just brilliantly and lucidly made evident. But what confounds me, 
and like I said, other art historians, is what it all means. And I think I've always been drawn back to him because of that same sensation. I recall seeing the strange black orb of the mirror. Whenever I am trying to precisely pinpoint what his work kicks up in me, I always remember that ominous black orb. Which is kind of funny to think, because um, at least in the popular public perception, the Renaissance was this incredible rebirth of humanity following several hundred years of bloodshed and darkness and masochistic religious hell. It had been like a whole half century of catastrophes, including, you know, the plague, the crusades, and suddenly it was all of these... um, you know, mostly Italian artists, including Raphael and da Vinci and, of course, Titian. Uh, It was these Italian artists introducing an effulgent humanism back into the world's artistic understanding of itself. So I think um, when most people think of the Renaissance, we just can't help but conjure up these images of big, beautiful, flowing robes and fat, little angel babies and uh, these gorgeous lines making up human forms, sweetness, warmth, those kinds of things. Like, even the most serious of biblical stories retold in this art, it ends up uh, reading is shimmering and powerful and bright. But all the same... Looking at this high renaissance art, I still can't shake the feeling that there's something a little sinister going on here. Even if um, this stuff isn't really thematically challenging or metaphorically rich or particularly complex in what it's trying to say, I'm always reminded of that big, strange, dark vortex of the mirror in Woman at Her Toilet. And when I recall Titian's uh, arguably most famous work, that sensation not only persists, but I think it actually becomes much stronger. And that image is the Venus of Urbino from 1534-ish. Art historians like to bicker about why exactly this was commissioned. Some think it was as a celebration of marriage rights. But regardless of the context, what we peer into is a totally unclothed woman with her enormous, curvaceous lines of her body completely revealed. We see the folds leading into her pussy. We see her swollen breasts, her um, kind of shockingly plump stomach, along with a morsel of roses in her hand, a dog resting beside her, and her servants in the backdrop uh, shuffling through some trunks. And through it all, her gaze staring directly out of the painting and into the audience. Titian and his school of prodigies were quite famous for these series of reclining Venus is reclining Venuses. <laughs> Basically, he uh, kind of made a certain style out of depicting these beautiful women completely stretched out and 
inviting the onlooker with this kind of gaze. And when I said that this is one of now the most quintessential erotic images of our times, I mean, you can even go back a hundred years ago and ask Mark Twain what he thought. And he described it as the foulest, the vilest, the obscenest picture the world possesses. He was very scandalized by Venus's gaze as she looks out beyond the borders of her art and directly evokes the onlooker in a pornographic act. He was, I think, a little jealous of this unbridled eroticism, Mark Twain was. He also wrote in this um, travel book, A Tramp Abroad, he says, If I ventured to describe that attitude, there would be a fine howl. But there the Venus lies for anybody to gloat over that wants to. And there she has a right to lie, for she is a work of art, and art has its privileges. I saw young girls stealing furtive glances at her, I saw young men gaze long and absorbedly at her. I saw aged and firm men hang about her charms with a pathetic interest. How I should like to describe her, just to see what a holy indignation I could stir up in the world, just to hear the unreflecting average man deliver himself about my grossness and coarseness and all that. The world says that no worded description of a moving spectacle is a hundredth part as moving as the same spectacle is seen with one's own eyes. Yet the world is willing to let its son and its daughters and itself look at Titian's beast, but won't stand a description of it in words, which shows that the world is not as consistent as it might be. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I personally find this criticism to be so delicious. And I want to take Twain up on his little provocation. I want to make the sensuality of this image as real as possible. Because I think he's right. I think that the Venus of Urbino is one of the most obscene images ever realized by the human hand. Despite the fact that this painting is almost inarguably inviting and sweet. When you look at the crumpled sheets just honeyed underneath her and the big bright red mattress the plush texture of the dog aside her and the bloody red lively roses in her hand it all feels so inviting but this depiction is earth shatteringly intense Twain wrote about how many different kinds of people were all entranced by Venus reclining on her bed. And there is something androgynous about the sort of manly pooch about her stomach. This image is so charged with eroticism that it completely transcends gender and becomes a severely sensual picture for anyone cursed with a fate of looking upon it. And I think that has everything to do with the fact that Titian wants you to be pleased and euphoniously drawn in by this image. He wants you to covet Venus. 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 Venus! Like I was saying earlier, the art of the High Renaissance was not known in particular for being uh, especially rich in theme. 
you'll find that a lot of people trying to create some sort of argument out of Titian's work ultimately end up resigning to the fact that maybe there wasn't anything in particular that was trying to be said. This is especially true for the black-orbed mirror I was talking about. There doesn't seem to be a specific allegory or iconography that can be assigned that gives the portrait greater meaning. There is nothing Christ-like here. There is nothing biblical. There is um, only those two servants in the back that people try to often pick apart for uh, some sort of representative blah, 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 bullshit. I don't buy into any of it. I know what this picture is saying because I have looked into the eyes of Venus of Urbino. This is an untarnished, unblemished, and perfectly preserved representation of sex. <gasps> oh my god, I said it. I said sex. Someone call the Tradcats. I said sex out loud. Oh my god. You guys, like, the Venus of Urbino, like, could have been, like, 16. <sighs> um, I mean, you know... <laughs> hyperbole aside, I actually do understand why people might be, like, accosted and offended by this portrait. Because what it's doing is it's representing an unbridled sexuality in the lovingly drawn portrait of this woman. It's presenting such a perfect image of what it means to be seduced and drawn in and invited into sex, that, of course, this is upsetting. When one feels uh, someone confront them with beauty so severe that you can only try to wrangle it back with the erotic drive, of course, you know, it's a little offensive, it's a little shocking. And in the case of Venus of Urbino, when this whole image is brought forth with such a confrontational, widescreen, large-scale invitation into the world of the erotic, it is, in fact, somewhat scary and twisted and frightening. This image has no postmodern comment. It has no critique. It has no theme. It has no metaphor or symbolism or allegory. It is merely sex on canvas. And just like that mirror, with no, you know, ideological backing behind it, it becomes uncanny and moving on a primal and carnal level. When one allows themselves to be fully confronted by the terror of beauty and the intensity of sexuality you are entering a zone of the Chthonian and the primordial and the primal and instinctual, and feeling that you have no control as you look into this depiction of a human being lovingly trying to draw you into her bed with one hand teasingly placed upon her vulva, you have been sucked into the subterranean. That's a difficult thing to experience, isn't it? And it's such a guttural experience to look at this picture and feel aroused by it even slightly that 
it makes a lot of sense that this became one of the most important paintings to ever touch the Western canon. Next time you look at any perfume ad or any lightly sexualized image of a woman, just look at the way that she's staring into the camera, as Venus of Urbino once did, and you'll see that she's still there, staring straight at you. Of course, the practiced perfection of this movement couldn't last forever, and as Italian art continued to develop, it became, um, let's just say a little different. While the High Renaissance seemingly marked a culmination of artistic critical mass in which all matters of human form, lighting, and subject matter had already been achieved, there is, of course, room to take those provocations and extremities to derive from perfection and make it into something new. So, with no aspirations left for artistic accomplishment... The mannerist painters arrived to take a perverse and decadent ambivalence to their subjects. Mannerism, which seceded the High Renaissance, gleefully looked away from Raphael's uh, School of Athens, basically what's known to be the most perfect uh, painting ever made up until then. Uh, It uh, looked away from that world and into unwieldy corners of representation from which they could uh, derive new uncanny perfections from a sensual world somewhere between the classical past and an unknowable future. They started stretching out human bodies into bizarre elongations. They made the baby Jesus like really ripped and huge like John Cena they like uh, painted scenes from these strange uh, slants in perspective that seem almost uh, like deliberately removed from anything you could see on Earth. And they just generally bathed in so many references that the entire effect feels something like an apocalyptic entropy. That this carnival of information and myth and scholastic artissimal performance is um, all registered with this cool dulcet swoof model. It just gives painters like uh, Tintoretto and Pontormo. I don't know how you say these Italian words. It it just gives them like um, an aloof quality that I think is shockingly contemporary. Unlike the High Renaissance art that feels um, so simple and free and loose, the work of the Mannerists is overly steeped in reference and ideas and history, and the work feels singularly horrifying. I was immediately obsessed with Mannerism when I was studying it in my high school AP art history class that I reference all the time. 
I just think about Madonna with long neck and her frightening, frighteningly contorted body and that scary John Cena Jesus, and I've never been able to quite let go. Critics have called mannerism affected, intellectually boisterous, and unnatural, hence the name of the movement, but I find that this nagging sense of history gives the whole affair a very relevant power. And among the most powerful of these images is maybe my all-time favorite painting from 1545 by Agnolo? Agnolo? I don't know how you say his first name. Bronzino. Uh, the, the name of the painting, as I knew it, was Allegory with Venus and Cupid, but I think it's more popularly referred to as Venus, Cupid, Folly, and Time. This is a truly despondent and disgusting painting. And while Venus of Urbino is horrifying for what's sort of left unstated, what's evoked in the onlooker, when one gazes upon Venus, Cupid, Folly, and Time, all of the horror is immediately derived from the image and one's knowledge of the context leading up to it. On this canvas, which must certainly have been summoned from some obscure layer of hell, we have Venus and her son, Cupid, making out as Cupid grotesquely fondles and squeezes and pinches her nipple. Um, if you didn't realize that this was an incestual relationship, you might uh, not be immediately put off. But if you stared a little bit deeper into these big blue curtains that waft behind them, you'd see that the symbol of time is suddenly ripping down the curtain and a woman screams as he does so. In the distance, there is a truly unsettling picture of a man gripping his head and screaming with greasy hair. There are masks on the floor and the Pudo, the um, fat little cute baby that uh, is, is so uh, prevalent in uh, Italian art, he's gripping all of the flower petals he's about to throw onto them, but has not thrown them quite yet. There is just so much fucked up shit, honestly, going on in this. The incest pales in comparison to the existential horror of time literally ripping back the setting of your existence, there seems to be a cognizant eye that an onlooker is recognizing this. They are familiar with those beautiful Renaissance, lacy, folding blue sheets, and he's pulling it back. This manifestation of time, he's pulling it back to reveal a woman in screaming horror. The petals haven't even been thrown yet. Time is misaligned, and what should be a simply erotic image is suddenly turned into something much more unsettling. And this totally is pornographic and erotic at face value. I already mentioned Cupid's stray hand squeezing and pinching his mother's nipple, and she is illustrated so lovingly 
I just love the way the Italians draw fat on people. She has this little bit of muffin top that leans into itself and creates these divine shadows and lines that are just so... I don't know. It makes me, like, want to, like, reach out and, like, crush it in my hands like a fucking marshmallow or something. But all of that is thrown into an unbelievably harsh historical relief by the quite provocative suggestion that time will rip away everything behind you and leave the cold, stark reality of sex. Obviously, my show has been uh, quite sex-positive, or whatever you'd like to say. I'm always about embracing extremity. But of course, I recognize that there is a fundamental evil in that act. With Venus of Urbino, the evil is kind of this um, shock value of having gazed upon Venus and been stirred and disturbed to find out that your body reacts in some way to it. And this is 100% the inverse. It is evoking all of your knowledge in order to present this natural habit of sex and curse it with the endlessly mounting layers of history that taint society and leave sex a much more heavy object than it would be if we were just animals screwing around in the forest. But we're not just animals screwing around in the forest. We have invented something called society that maintains a collective memory. We have thousands of years of art history and records describing our past to us, and with each passing moment, Time begins to draw the curtain back on our pleasure with more and more fury. With every collective memory we gather and with every trauma that occurs to our societies between the burning of libraries in Alexandria and the Holocaust and nuclear bombs and um, some silly little thing called COVID-19... As time marches forward, it's all belabored more deeply into our spirit, and it turns the beautifully illustrated acts of sex into a nightmarish incest disaster that can only leave onlookers screaming, gripping their faces, and realizing that all of this ecstasy is saddled with everything our species has done up until this point. This is why I think I find mannerism so fascinating, is because it has such a reverence for the past and its mythologies, and it uses all of that to both literally distort its figures into these strange, muscular, elongated shapes, but also into these referential feedback loops It really seems to truly illustrate simultaneously both the visual and pleasurable elements of sex, while also reminding you that this is all betrothed to a nightmarish chain of historical events. Venus, Cupid, Time, and Folly takes the extension of the Renaissance and funnels it into 
a truly sexual image that without a doubt arouses the onlooker, but at the same time reminds you of all that's come before it. It refuses to let you forget mortality, as well as the mortality of every other member of our race that's come up until this point. And that kind of thinking, if you were, if one was spiritually stuck in the mannerist layer, I can imagine that sex would become totally unappealing and alien. And has that not become true more recently? I feel like mannerism might have been like one of the first postmodern moments in history. And for maybe the last mm, 10, 12 years, we have been in a mannerist chain of terror. We have been so stuck in our history and philosophy and social justice ideas. We've been so obsessed with making this carnal realm of the sexual into something that can be described with concepts so digestible they can be published into a BuzzFeed or New York Times article. We've been so obsessed with these things that we have simply chosen the easier path of rejecting it outright and descending into a scolding, unfortunate, and finger-wagging mode of antipathy, and hatred towards sex. Mannerism was famous for its indifference towards everything. It was famous for its cool and quiet tone about all of these things. Despite all the shocking imagery I described, it is registered in those um, dulcet colors that make it all feel sort of matter-of-fact. And so I understand why looking at sex in the contemporary moment, you'd feel indifferent towards it. It's easier to wash it out into the mannerist colors than it is to actually experience the terror of Venus of Urbino and realize that your soul is being sucked up into some void that you have no control over whatsoever, some universe in which an ancient string of biological impulses is controlling you. But what's incredible about Italian art is that it immediately course-corrects from this with the onset of the Baroque movement. And the transition from Mannerism to Baroque was largely heralded by uh, artists like Caravaggio, who one day I uh, am looking forward to describing in as much detail as possible. <clears throat> Can you hear that? Like, my entire throat is just, like, stuffed with cigarettes? Sorry. Um, anyway, uh, aside from Caravaggio, also ushering the era of the Baroque was the uh, Caracci family. And Caravaggio and the Caracci family were responsible for leading Italian images out of this mannerism and into the Baroque. They looked towards a naturalist and expressive form to push back on the performance of the disillusioned mannerists. Uh, the younger brother, Annabale Caracci, created images that were lighter and fonder of frescoes than Caravaggio ever was. Uh, but I think that Caracci's work is underappreciated uh, for the dynamic and moving portal his work provides into the erotic senses. And especially considering how we're now relapsing into mannerism and a faint disgust and terror towards sex, I feel like his work becomes even more important. 
this particular painting I want to discuss. It's called Venus, Adonis, and Cupid from 1595. It follows Ovid's depiction of the Adonis myth as told in Metamorphi, Metamor, Metamorphose, whatever, in which uh, Venus encounters the beautiful Adonis, the preeminent image of all male beauty. He's a mortal child of incest and more stunning than any deity. He uh, becomes victim to Venus's powerful love and... Um, Cupid ends up striking Venus, and she becomes so head over heels for him. Uh, they have a really passionate history where she abandons the gods and is uh, in a companion to him. And Adonis, despite Venus's warnings uh, and his overly zealous masculine courage, uh, he ends up gored by a wild boar. And Venus is left to mourn her love for him. She transforms his blood into flowers. And this Karachi painting uh, depicts the moment in which they first fall truly in love. This scene is so early in their love affair, in fact, that you can actually still see a dribble of blood from where Cupid pierced his, um, his mother with the arrow of passion. This being a early Baroque painting, uh, it features highly intense chiascuro, uh, that being the contrast between bright white lights and horrifying depths of darkness. It's this uh, shining spotlight that illuminates and leaves the rest of the world in a faded darkness. Naturally, what's lit up with this spotlight of God are the three-dimensional, highly realized figures uh, embroiled in this love affair. We get to look upon Venus staring adoringly at Adonis for the first time, and her face is put into so many colors and dimensions in this bright whiteness that you can really see the deepness and the depth of her love for Adonis. He stretches one hand into the dark, but he's pushing it away as he surrenders totally into the light. Shakespeare in his poetry had recently repopularized this Adonis uh, mythology, and I really think that the audiences would be quite familiar with this legend, and so it's immediately tainted with a foresight of which you know the inexorable tragedy that will unfold upon these two beautiful young people. These two beautiful, shining, white, gorgeous bodies. And despite that, the actual painting projects no pessimism or fear. There's no mannerist... Um, evocation of uh, history turning into a poison of sex. Instead, we have a moment that shows a pure lust. A lust and a love and an affection that is so simple and unbothered by anything else before it that it reminds you that 
even with all of those immense systems on top of you, there is the moment where you turn your head to the right, over your shoulder, straight into Adonis with his clothes revealing his nipple as they unfold in these gorgeous patterns. And there is nothing else. Behind you, the world is dark, and you're pushing it all away for this one exchange of passion with another individual. I think taking the high renaissance confrontation of lust and the mannerist deluge of references and the Baroque rejection of those same ideas, I think synthesizing all of them and seeing how these 16th century Italians felt that love and beauty and lust was so centrifugal to their understanding of the universe, I think that is what's most important as we drift closer to the present. to speak or to die. Call Me By Your Name was originally a 2007 novel by Andre Osimhen and was later adapted onto the screen in 2017 by Luca Guadagnino with a screenplay by James Ivory. And I remember when this was coming out, I could not take it. Because all of a sudden, literally everyone around me, all of my straight friends, my gay friends, women, men, my teachers, um, my underclassmen, my entire universe was suddenly swallowed whole by Call Me By Your Name. And being the ever-persistent homosexual supremacist and art contrarian, I decided before even seeing it or walking into the theater that I hated it and wanted nothing to do with it, and it was inevitably trash. But because this um, was one of the big Oscar bait movies that year, and I used to be like really into watching as many of the best picture noms as possible, uh, despite my unwavering distaste for what I imagined to be a heterosexual imagination of gay people, me and my uh, good friend Peter from the fraternity went and uh, watched it together at the Regal Cinemas in Eugene, Oregon. And I remember the precise moment in which my predetermined distaste for the movie began to slowly thaw into a cautious appreciation. 
and it was uh, watching Timothy Chalamet with his uh, shirt off with a starving, inflated African baby body, and he looks over his shoulder while lying at a pool to make eye contact with uh, his love interest, is played by Army Hammer. And all of a sudden, a Sakamoto Ryuichi composition comes on. I had been scowling the whole movie, wondering why these characters could do nothing but speak in all of these romance languages and muse about philosophy and art, and it kept really rubbing me the wrong way. But then, a Sakamoto Ryuichi song came on, and I felt like I was being targeted directly. And from that moment onward, I was utterly helpless to the charms of this movie. If you've seen anything else by Luca Guadagnino, you'll know that he has a very serious uh, penchance for texture. Whenever I watch the Suspiria remake, I feel like the wet woolen sweater on these German girls is like in my hand. And with Call Me By Your Name, this movie feels like Italian linens draping through my fingers. It's something about those Sakamoto compositions in the background, uh, the big blue glistening sea and riversides, the endless greenery and the food on the table, the peaches, the 80s music that just wafts about. It is so physical. I just couldn't resist, despite the fact that my militant faggot sensibilities were desperately trying to send me in the other direction. Call Me By Your Name ended up being something of a Venus of Urbino to me. I was offended as I was turned on. I couldn't take my eyes off of the consistency of these shots, and the gazes between these two characters was provoking me in the same way Venus of Urbino has provoked onlookers for centuries. Going back through all of this Italian art, I'm led to believe that I'm not really the only one who felt this way um, sitting down to watch it. And in fact, I think it's a feature and not a glitch of both the film and its source material that it has this taut sort of womanizing effect on its audience. This movie was obsessed over by so many of my friends, my colleagues, my professors, my co-workers, and beyond that, almost completely unsurprisingly, this movie became an absolute tour de force in countries like Korea and China and Japan, where boys love is the name of the game when it comes to women's erotica. All of this is to say that uh, in the five years since this movie's come out, I have yet to see another popular film so thoroughly capture the global erotic sensibility. And the fact that the object of fascination here is, when you boil it down, a story about a 17-year-old little boy getting fucked up the ass by a big, burly, husky American guy. I mean, something interesting is going on here, don't you think? <laughs> to briefly summarize a plot of which there is little of in the first place, uh, this just follows uh, Elio in 1983, a little 17-year-old Jewish-Italian-European-something-or-other guy. Um, he's delighting in a summer in northern Italy by transcribing music. His academic parents host a foreign scholar every summer, and this year it is the uh, stud 
Oliver. He's uh, older. He has big arms, uh, virile hair on his chest and forearms, and he walks about with a braggadocious, confident American attitude. They spend uh, half of their time together at odds, approaching and orbiting each other, and then running away before uh, eventually they give in to their desires, engage on a several-day bender of intense sexuality, and then depart uh, from one another. Elio is very heartbroken to hear that, oh, he married a woman. And then in the novel, not in the film, they uh, meet up dozens of years later and uh, share a, a dumb, tender moment together. Of course, that's the plot of the film, but it's really not about that at all. What makes, I think, Call Me By Your Name special and something that was tolerable even to me and my contrarian rage of hatred is that the film is not about the perils of gay sexual identity. It is not about any sort of culture at all. It is merely about a single burning flame of desire that briefly unites two people and the apocalyptic intensity of such feeling. The way that flame starts to ignite, uh, both on screen and in the novel, is through uh, a very obnoxious sort of academic glamorama. It's all of these uh, very verbose, articulate people chit-chatting and spatting about literary theory and music theory and theory and theory and also some theory. It's just like these people are all, um, like, impressions of people. None of them are really human. Um, There's a major sense of disreality here, because nothing is going wrong. There's no conflict or antagonist. It instead is a dreamy, idealized landscape of Italy in which all of its populace are petulant little literature and philosophy professors, and they all just get to wear delicious, beautiful clothes and lounge around and sleep and uh, eat fruit all day. And I specifically remember that when I was in my militant homosexual era in college or what have you, I was so angry that this movie was set in 1983 and had no depiction of AIDS. I was so scornful that how dare they depict these two hot guys fucking around when AIDS is happening in the background. How could you not talk about that? But now, having revisited it and being a little older and um, maybe less insane about AIDS than I was in my youth, I now see... Oh my god, excuse me. I see Call Me By Your Name for what it is. Jesus Christ. Please forgive me. How unladylike. Call Me By Your Name is, in fact, a very specific form of fantasia. It's desire and eroticism at its most concentrated state in which no history and no mannerist garbage can pierce its pure, burning fever for love. Because this fantasy is designed by a much older heterosexual professor of Proust, it makes sense that a lot of it ends up being 
uh, set in the backdrop of academic babbling. But when you look a little bit past his decoration, you'll see that this is really a return to a erotic realm not seen since Eve fatefully ate that forbidden fruit. Okay, so hot take. Uh, Call Me By Your Name is actually about how fucked up all of you straight people are. Like, you are fucked up. Because what we have before us are two vessels of desire, two vessels of nearly imperceivable beauty. One being Army Hammer, smart, gruff, secretly emotional, gambling, masculine, and uh, traditionally handsome in the most traditionally traditional of ways. He looks like an Ivy League crew team member, obviously, and it makes sense that he has uh, an eating people fetish, relatable. And on the other hand, we have Timothy Chalamet, who is so waifish and white and slender and feminine that he almost tracks more of something like the Venus of Urbino than he does as... um anything a a gay man would popularly choose to sexualize in the year 2022. I bring up that he's not really um, an appealing gay eroticized figure, because what these two vessels are, in fact, is a crucible for heterosexual emotion. Army Hammer, as Oliver, is sort of incidentally hot for gay people, but in general, these two men are not eroticized in the way that gay men do. And in fact, when actual gay people are on stage in this story, uh, they are called, quote, Sonny and Cher, unquote, by Elio, and then uh, mercilessly ridiculed, both in the novel and the film, as uh, uppity, snuppity, obnoxious, pastel shirt-wearing queens. Literally queens. And of course, like, the two gay characters that are Um, on stage here are ridiculed because it only serves to remind you that this is not any sort of gay love story. This is a heterosexual interaction being performed by two men. This is something I would have never been able to realize back in 2017, but when I was going through the novel in preparation for this episode, I could understand with utter certainty that the way Elio, uh, it's narrated from his point of view. The way he describes Oliver and the manner in which his desire begins to unfold in him, it's so untouched by any of the characteristic gay mourning that we have as we recognize ourselves as homosexuals. It really feels like, um, to be honest, a little girl coming into passion for the first time. And I want to be clear that the movie is especially fantastic at realizing uh, this um, longing. There's so much uh, brief contact of the skin and tantalizing looks between each other. And the novel in its first 120 pages is even more brilliant. The first person sort of diary-esque narration in which every single interaction with Oliver is lovingly recounted and ironed out for detail. It's resonant, I think, to any human being who's ever felt a sort of unrequited or uncertain love. There's so much art that does it, I think, way better than this novel does. Uh, Forbidden Colors by Mishima, of course, comes to mind. But what I will say is, 
particularly unique about this book is that it is, as I mentioned, a completely straight, cisgender, heterosexual interaction that has merely been stowed away in the bodies of these two boys. When thinking about art movements like mannerism, which basically tried to drown out the horror of sexuality with endless reference and comment and idea and philosophy, it makes sense that in order to escape all of that and to truly channel one's real drives, you have to take it out of the context of yourself and replace it. You have to literally relocate it into something that has nothing to do with you. You have to have a pretense so that you can truly express and ponder upon and pontificate about what it means to be horny for someone. Because once something is removed so clearly from your own ego and placed onto separate subjects, you have a lot more liberty and a lack of restrictions placed upon you by society and can thus more truly engage with these uncomfortable and unwieldy feelings that animate your being. And I think that the love of boys is perhaps the most convenient crucible for channeling these kinds of feelings, not only because it harkens back to Grecian philosophers like Socrates and Plato and all the other ones who were sticking things up boys' butts back then, but because it has a sort of mystique and uh, mystery around the rectum that straight men just are never really familiar with. But the funny thing is that what Osman gets right here, and I think it's almost completely by accident, I think it just came kind of uh, inquitly out of him in his primordial soup brain, I think that the mystery and intrigue of the rectum is in fact because most straight men in their life will, at least once, even if they don't recognize it, they'll perhaps covet a boy. I'm sure I'm losing a few people here, but I actually am, am certain about this. No matter how straight someone is, the nature of men is that we are the ones who have the serious sex drive on the table. And when you're surrounded by other men... Eventually, those desires, even if you're not a homosexual, will briefly lapse onto a figure who looks something like maybe you once did in the past. All I'm saying is that I think there is infinitely a fundamental curiosity about the mysteries of the rectum and homosexual sex. And if I was wrong about that, then maybe this movie wouldn't have been such a major success, and maybe it wouldn't have been this fundamental moment in late 2010s ultra-woke culture uh, in the pit of Me Too, mind you, in some of the absolute most intense of sexual persecution that's ever happened in American history. This movie about a 24-year-old screwing a 17-year-old became massively successful. The detail in which the film adaptation in particular of Call Me By Your Name becomes so successful is just astounding. The most quintessential scene that gets brought up the most is uh, Elio fucking a peach and ejaculating in it. Uh, 
Oliver almost eats the peach in the film, uh, although he does in the novel. But I hardly think that's the most <clears throat> intense sexual element in the film. Between the endless looking over of the shoulders and Elio staring down at the half-eaten food on Oliver's plate, watching the way his legs move as he plays volleyball, all of that plus wandering into his room while you know he's not there and smelling his swim trunks. You'll notice that those things never get brought up. Only the fantastical, inaccessible image of the ejaculated in peach comes up. Whereas the fact is, is that the truth and the actualized undercurrent of what all of these straight people secretly are dying for, it's in Elio wrapping a pair of swim trunks around his face and then arching his back up like a little slut. When these characters do have sex, it never communicates the mystery of the rectum. All of the penetration is left off screen and we have uh, virtually no idea of what happens when the sex is actualized. But as I mentioned, this is not a film about gay sex. This is a film about heterosexual desire being broadcast through two gay receptors, or however you want to say it. There's a a quote uh, given to Elio at the very end of the novel as he has a very strange conversation with his father. And his father bemoans that once he felt this desire for another man and was never able to act upon it. And his father says to Elio, But remember, our hearts and our bodies are given to us only once. Most of us can't help but live as though we've got two lives to live. One is the mock-up, the other the finished version. And then there are all those versions in between. But there's only one, and before you know it, your heart is worn out. And as for your body, there comes a point when no one looks at it, much less wants to come near it. There is so much baggage in the heterosexual universe. There is so much regret and self-awareness that has locked them completely out of any sexual universe that they so desperately long for. It is so locked off and distant from them that in order to even broach it, in order to even so much as place their fingertip against its surface, They have to create an entire fictionalized fantasy of an outdated sexual mode of a man and a boy. And from there, they have to dream through this gauze of academic babble. They have to dream through all of these beautiful Italian lunches and rainy afternoons listening to the radio. They have to dream that somewhere within all of that decoration... There's even a private or secret opportunity to simply stick your face into some guy's shorts. And the lengths that are gone to to illustrate this desire are simply unheard of. It's an absolute ejaculation of every pent-up, bound-up desire that straight people have buried themselves in history to avoid. And even still, 
It took a gay screenwriter and an even gayer director to make it into something palatable and beautiful and pleasing to the eye. Because Osman, in his delusional fantasy and his misplaced channeling of desire, can't even brave reality enough to describe a setting in this novel. There is no vista or detail of a room or any physical sense of locality that is ever written about one time in the book. It all exists merely in this broken longing. And in that way, I find both of these projects to be both touching and tragic and beautiful, but also fabulously broken and malfunctioning. Call Me By Your Name, both its film and its novel, are merely mirages on the horizon. They're Italian hallucinations of a possible world in which heterosexuals can escape their own parameters, escape what they've set themselves up with, and finally, once again, experience true love. Because once the dream of lust and beauty and true passion is experienced, everyone involved has to wake up. Wake up. Wake up. What unfortunately happens in both the film and the novel is that they both become pretty fiercely uninteresting the second that the desire is consummated. The novel is especially bad at this. Um, basically, after Oliver and Elio first fuck, uh, the novel goes into completely heinous and obnoxious saccharine nonsense. Uh, the trip that they take to Rome together features this absolutely absurd poetry reading that they both get teary at and like share hugs at. I mean, it's complete blithering stupidity. The film has the wisdom not to go any further after their trip. Uh, there's one sad phone call at the end of the movie, and it closes on a shot of Elio crying and preparing to process his pain for the uh, rest of his life in love. Um, cool. But honestly, both of them, as soon as they have pictured the consummation... They cannot go any further in imagining the productivity or the use of what this desire can do over time. Because in the heterosexual imagination of sex and love, all of this can only inevitably burn out in this nihilistic, tragic spiral. It has to end in cold, weepy, blah. And I just think that's unfortunate. And it makes the whole interactions between Elio and Oliver in both the last half of the film and the last half of the novel just intensely unbelievable and boring to observe. This is why I find that although I do continue to be fascinated and drawn back in from time to time by Call Me By Your Name, I am pretty confident in... Uh, just categorizing it in the yaoi BL layer and leaving it there. Because when women write this kind of erotica in the East, when we have boys love, which I've, I've talked about um, in pretty great extent in the past, it's never about any actuality of, of passion. It's never about any actuality of love. It's uh, merely, like I said, 
an Italian phantasm. It's one idea or gesticulation towards the concept that can never be fully completed or made into anything worthwhile. All that's here is a beautifully perfumed and manicured facsimile of what passion could really be. And I think it's interesting that this movie seemed to be kind of the first attempt to recover from the sexless 2010s. It absolutely capitalized on the great yearning that existed almost globally. There was so much desire for a more realized and fully fleshed depiction of sex on screen that it makes a lot of sense that these um, two idols of love could be knocked against each other for no meaning at all except for what turns out to be basically virtual emotional pornography and have that become one of the most important pictures of the year. But I refuse to accept the end of Osman's novel. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> Basically, it's just that um, the Timothy Chalamet character, Elio, um, gets to reunite once more with Oliver after tens and tens of years of quiet pining for his memory, living forever enshrined in an asexual and alibidinal, weepy reverence of the past. Girl, no, I do not buy it. I do not buy it. Like, of course, I have several lost loves who I will uh, live in a long shadow of, but that has never cut me off, and it shouldn't cut anyone else off of believing that there is always room for a more sensual reality. And, girl, we're in Italy. The sun always comes up in Italy, and I believe that there are still ways to synthesize all of this into more passionate living. decided that I have to talk about The White Lotus with all of you. I thought I wouldn't really have to give it much of an introduction. After all, literally everyone has been watching. 
so many people are watching, actually, that it's ended up as this sort of a de facto Game of Thrones, trading out rape and beheadings with, uh, of course, rape and reactionary politics. The way the timeline is stuffed with reaction image after reaction image of Jennifer Coolidge with a gun, or gifts depicting gay incestual butt sex every Sunday when new episodes were premiering, it just reminded me of how I used to read the timeline when uh, Game of Thrones was coming out. And I think that's exciting to see kind of like a collective conversation and everyone pooling together to watch the same thing as it used to happen in uh, days of yore. But seeing the reaction to this grand cinematic conclusion of Mike White's uh, masterpiece here, I realized that no one was really watching the show. I hope you could hear the italics in my voice when I said watching. Because there was plenty of consuming and yassing, all that crap. But the true thematic centerpiece of the whole affair went almost entirely unaddressed. And those who dared to offer an opinion I found were fucking wrong. So let's go all the way back to the drawing board. Because as proven by Call Me By Your Name, heterosexuals are helpless when it comes to expressing themselves erotically. And they have to rely on the vessels, channels, and proxies of other sexualities to make the point they want to make. They can hardly even make the art let alone critically process it and then manage by some Olympic feat to derive a meaningful theme from it. So I'm very sorry to talk down to uh, all three and a half of the straight people who listen to my show, but we have to just pretend that none of you have any idea what the White Lotus is and start over from scratch. Because if we don't, no one's going to figure out what this is actually about. You have to listen to me, because I'm, I'm right about this. This is, without a doubt, one of the most elaborate and bracingly true realizations of the contemporary erotic condition I have ever seen, and I refuse to let it go misinterpreted by you straight people. The White Lotus is directed and written by Mike White. It premiered in 2021, filmed in deep COVID quarantine bonanza, and it scornfully depicted the lives of rich vacationers in Hawaii as they languidly deceived one another, talked around their insecurities, and uh, eventually embraced reactionary politics as a means of revitalizing their hardened, brittle lives. Those rescued by the show's delectably edgy and true philosophy was an emasculated patriarch, given new manly power by resuming the ancient caveman mode of familial protector, a wannabe feminist housewife who doubles back on her desire for liberation to sink into the woozy delights of married life with a rich dude, and finally, a pair of bratty social justice zoomers who realize their politics end in nothing but doom and despair. The show is funny, and scary in equal measure. Uh, it's soundtracked by an absurdist and terrifying soundscape of mouth noise Hawaiian abstractions and filmed with a supremely disquieting gloss of beautiful nothingness. 
The water and waves and luau's and yellow renaissance lighting practically resonate with the sense of something hollow and unachieved. And the china doll facial expressions of these modern men and women failing to act how they're supposed to, it comes across as cracked and vulnerable in the way little acting reads in film or TV these days. If you haven't heard Anna Katchian from Red Scare and Jack on The Perfume Nationalist discuss Mike White's previous HBO contribution, Enlightened, together, and that's a great starting point, I think, to understanding what Mike White is all about. And after you've done that homework, you need to mosey on over to Jack's fabulous episode with Mike White himself, where he basically agrees with all of the readings of his art so far. And listen, you know, I'm a self-styled art critic myself, so I know it can be really frustrating to find out that you've been viewing something incorrectly. And usually I'm quite open to the uh, fun and games of interpretation, but when it comes to something as important and pressing as the White Lotus, which I really can't understate just how right this whole show is, then sorry, uh, you just have to listen to those who know more than you about it. <laughs> is that the most conceited thing I've ever said on my show? <gasps> Sue me. To be fair and throw a little bit of a bone, I will say myself that I actually misread the first season of uh, The White Lotus myself. And it wasn't until I rethought it over listening to Anna and Jack talk about it that I realized that I had been mistaken. Um, I remember I was watching the first season as it was coming out. I had just moved to Tokyo. And I remember feeling a little frustrated and disenchanted with it. Because by the end of the series, um, the gay character had been uh, killed off for uh, sort of like a punishment of his slutty ways or whatever. And I felt that the rich characters who had been led into these new thematic revelations about themselves had actually only ended up in a loop and that none of their lives were truly improved. I really have a distaste for nihilistic art, uh, especially any nihilistic and pessimistic crap that's been funneled out in the last 10 years. Uh, Parasite is one of my least favorite movies ever made because instead of trying to be productive or offer a glimmer of sublimity or hope, it just uh, decides to roll around in a pit of self-pitying mud and hopelessness. So when I finished the show and felt that it might be arguing the same thing that Parasite does, I was really irritated. But this is actually kind of the genius of the show. Because The White Lotus is presented with this sheen of HBO prestige and this sort of watchable, find-out-who-done-it format every week, it's infinitely easier to smuggle these controversial ideas into its mainframe. Like its own characters, The White Lotus is somewhat willing to play a game with its onlookers. It flirts with what it's supposed to be and with the watchable, bingeable format that so appeases our monkey brains. But deep inside of it, it is harboring some truly dark truths about the human race. 
it was able to fool me for at least a little bit, and it sure fooled a whole fuck ton of you. The second season of The White Lotus is even more cutting and blistering in its idea about humanity than the first. It moves its setting from the White Lotus Resort in Hawaii to that of the one in Sicily, and aside from Jennifer Coolidge as Tanya and uh, her on-screen husband Greg, everyone else is a brand new crop of unlikable, nasty people who uh, we get to uh, watch and delight in their tortures and redemptions. The cast here is sprawling and impeccable, You've never seen such an ensemble. Who's calling me? Oh. It was my phone trying to set off the emergency alarm. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, you've never seen an ensemble that's quite as powerful as what's going on here on White Lotus. Uh, first up, we have a family of three Italian-Americans, all men, uh, the oldest patriarch, Bert, his son Dominic, who has uh, recently ruined the family's relationship through his infidelity, and of course his son, the intolerable Zoomer feminist incel, Albie. After that we have Tanya's assistant, Portia, who never wears one fierce little outfit the entire show. They're all horrible, and I love each and every one. Then we have uh, a set of two couples one recently brought into wealth by tech on- entrepreneurship. Um, it's Will Sharp as Ethan and Aubrey Plaza looking particularly icy, liberal, and frigid as Harper, um, plus the happy-go-lucky uh, take-life-by-the-horns Theo James as Cam, and uh, in a really inspired performance, Megan Fahey as Daphne. And rotating around the hotel and kind of levitating in its backdrop, we have the prostitutes, uh, Mia and, oh god, another Italian name. I think it's Lucia? Lucia? I'm gonna go with that. I can't remember all of these fucking names. And we have, uh, in the breakout performance, um, the very charming Valentina, played by Sabrina Impacacciabrugge Italian. Party. Okay, I hope I never have to list a cast ever again in my entire life. That was so annoying. But basically, this is uh, just a complete melting pool of American archetypes that are then put into various sexual relationships with and without each other, all as cannon fodder for Mike White to blow up America with his vision for what must be done. As soon as these characters arrive in Sicily, we're immediately greeted with intense erotic imagery, as every hotel room and all around the island, we are accosted by these ceramic heads that reference uh, mythology of a cheating husband who was, I believe, beheaded by his wife, and the head was uh, used for potted plants. They sold reproductions of these heads all around the island and throughout the show among the various Italian paintings that peer and judge upon these mortals were constantly staring back into the eyes of these unfaithful skulls. 
uh, both in interviews um, and to Jack, and uh, whenever he's talked about the show, Mike White has kind of imagined that the first season was uh, something about money, and this one is all about sex. And the way that the sexual relationships begin to start detonating all over the show is fascinating. It's riveting, like I said, in that sort of soap opera, gotta watch it way. But beyond that, it is nail-biting and intense to see Mike White so perilously perilously, uh, walk the tightrope of his cool sexual critique of the country with this watchable HBO format. I think I've said the word watchable maybe 400 million times already, but I really can't stress it. Um, Alec and, and Jack were talking about this too, but because there is the sort of Agatha Christie murder mystery that frames the show, we get a glimpse of it in the first episode, and then it leads up to it day by day each episode. It's... um really an important concept that not only is this scalding critique, it's also entertainment. And it's fun to be entertained by TV. I haven't felt this way watching anything since I binge-watched all of Inventing Anna in like two days. Every single character that I just laboriously listed out for you is such a pressing truth that It feels almost as if you're staring into a bright white light and you have an urge to look away. But because of Mr. White's engaging screenwriting, you can't help but get uh, constantly pulled back in by the drama, the catty fighting, uh, the one-liners that have come to define Tanya's uh, preposterous, boisterous character. But... Once you can kind of split the hairs of this luscious screenwriting, you get true tokens of what we have to deal with in post-mannerist American asexual society. These characters are manic and upset and in deep pain and so labored with Hundreds and hundreds of years of society climaxing into this completely broken structure that, despite all wealth and glamorous indulgences in this beautifully filmed Italy, they are trapped and paralyzed by their own desires and completely incapable of working through them or utilizing them in any meaningful way. I think that this is most visibly true in one of the centerpieces of the show, which is the relationship between Harper, as played by Aubrey Plaza, and Ethan. He's a half-Japanese. I found him very sexy because of his tight little body and cute haircut, but everyone apparently hates him. They have a totally stagnant relationship. Aubrey Plaza, as Harper, is constantly whining. She's reading the New York Times She's subscribed to an apocalyptic vision of the future in which nothing good can come of anything. The world is hopeless, and being unaware of the pain and terror of the contemporary moment is mortal sin. Watching Harper roll her eyes over and over again at the fun-loving Daphne and Cam, watching her scold Ethan and berate him for having friends as stupid, ignorant, and carefree as them. In these first few episodes, it is disgusting. You could, you, you're led to wonder, 
how could any woman turn out to be like this? Aubrey Plaza looks so gorgeous here, and she's um, lovingly decorated with fantastic costuming that makes her seem um, really just uh, beautiful to me in every shot. And then to see this gorgeous figure in every scene just whine and prattle and roll her eyes and retreat to her room to read a book and read the newspaper, it disgusts. And it reminds you as well of the present. I don't mean to sound like any more of a misogynist than I am, but I think one of the greatest tragedies of the 21st century is the loss of the authentic and unpracticed bimbo. Of course, we've had so many people turn into an ironic kind of post-textual bimbo, if you want to call it that. I find it really gross, but we don't have any more Reese Witherspoon, legally blonde women anymore. And instead, we're infested by these absolute hall-monitoring scolds who have to shake their head and complain at every instance about the sins and tragedies of the contemporary moment. It is very unflattering, and the dichotomy between the beautifully portrayed Harper and her honestly grating personality made me want to rip my hair out watching it. So like I said, you, you end up wondering, how does someone end up like this? And the answer is in Ethan, who has become even less sexually animated than her. Uh, people like to reference the scene of him jerking off to porn a lot. I think it's a little deeper than that. I think it's more of a lack of masculine will. He has uh, no male element about him, and he's sheepish and feminine and nervous. And as uh, later in the show... The question of Harper's own fidelity, and if perhaps she's uh, cheating on Ethan with uh, Theo James and his huge swinging horse dick, that's the only moment where he's suddenly uh, turned into a little bit of a man. We see that because he's lost and been misplaced with all of the traits that make a, a man interesting, that the most important element between them, the sexuality, has violently perished. And when sex perishes and leaves you with nothing but the New York Times between you, life and love becomes a revolting affair. I began to notice that there was an interesting element to Ethan's misplaced masculinity when him and Cam are left to their own devices. The women take a trip out to some rural village and rent a glamorous room to stay there. And while they're away, there is a fascinating jet ski scene where, as if they're riding ancient horses with lances aimed at each other, they uh, play... God, what's the name of that game? Someone help me. Chicken. Oh, work, I got it. They play chicken with each other, and it's soundtracked with this fabulous crescendoing classical opera that zooms in on their face and we see their grueling machismo finally come into conflict with one another and it's the first time we see him as a man at all reading that scene i was so riveted to see these questions of actually realized manliness come onto stage and mike white does not concede to it just being a symptom of quote porn sickness unquote 
one of the most oversaturated ideas in this entire movement of thought. And he doesn't also just let it be a lack of uh, the male role in whatever moment we're living in. What he's missing is sexualized passion. We'll come back to this uh, very soon, I imagine, but this argument is very Italian in my mind. This is sort of the challenging look of the Venus of Urbino, and beyond that, Venus, Adonis, and Cupid. It's a confession that these intense, disgusting, horrifying desires of sexuality are all within us, and to merely ignore it and to shut it down and blast it away into reading news articles and being upset about the present, it's not going to lead to anything powerful or glistening. This lack of passion is truly the motivating theme of this season. What you'll find wrong in all of these washed-up rich people in Italy, every single one of them is united by a single conflict. Every protagonist, every character in Crisis, they've all had their sexual desires maliciously and violently disrupted. They are all suffering from lack and want. For Ethan and Harper, their shared concupiscence has been entombed by an overly wary sense of justice. For the grandfather of the DeGrasso family, he's too old to be seen as a sexual being. What he does want, he just can't get. His son, Dominic, has failed in the Foucauldian mode to balance an overabundance of pleasure with public respectability. And the grandson, Albie, by far the worst off of the three, has manacled himself to an ethos of unsexed feminism and white knighting. Tanya's assistant, Portia, is so affected and alienated from her own being that she can't even process what is or isn't desirable for her. Not to mention Tanya, herself, so blind and foolish to the world around her she can't even tell the reason she feels dissatisfaction with her husband is because he's using her and never even wanted her to begin with. This goes as far as the resort manager, Valentina, eventually rearranging staff members so she can vindicate her unrequited desire for a not-quite-dyke. Even the fucking piano player is hospitalized because he's so desperate for orgasm, he'll take any pill a dumb hooker shoves down his fucking throat. These people are horny. And they all hate being horny. They're drowning in the laws of civilization and history and cultural baggage and split so far apart from each other that in their graves of sexual paucity, they all become intolerable, shrewish, nightmare people. But let's not forget that I do not care for pessimistic and fatalist art. And if there's anything that the second season of The White Lotus isn't, it's pessimistic. Mike White seems to be so confident in his vision of the world that I would actually describe this season of the show to be hopeful and prescriptive. It's active. It gives a philosophy that can, in fact, save you from all of this gloopy, rule-abiding asexuality. 
So far, I've described how the castration of passion from one's life can lead to its ruination in many of these characters. But I haven't really mentioned the fact that there is also at play several foils to these abstinent atrocities. Because given nearly an equal amount of screen time to the chaste little freakout babies, we have several human beings who are living glittering, lustrous lives full of sex and eroticism and pure, unfiltered joy. People who can recognize the system, play it for their own game, and get out of all of it existences that are truly ecstatic. I believe there are three sets of characters who provide this optimistic uh, function in the show. So let's start at the most obvious and then whittle our way down to that which has proven most incomprehensible to you retards. Just kidding, I love all of you. Subscribe to my show on Patreon for exclusive Sirens episodes. So, first off, there's Cam and Daphne, played respectively by the beautiful Theo James and uh, Megan Fahey in a star-turning role. Like so many things in this show, the actual nature of their relationship is... uh, It's smuggled into the show uh, with a veneer of lib-approved wokeness. We watch as Harper and Ethan sit opposite these two at the brunch table, just scowling, turning their noses. The audience may misperceive that they too are in on this holier-than-thou attitude. Particularly after Cam leads Ethan on a night of... uh, debaucherous hooker slamming. Uh, Ethan doesn't end up fucking anyone, but the act of it all is scandalous enough to uh, provide most of the show's midsection all of its uh, tension and drama as Harper loops around uh, this recovered condom wrapper found left over from the aforementioned night and uh, begins uh, questioning the nature of her relationship with this Ethan character. Thereafter, we get these constant inquiries from both Harper and Ethan into the relationship of Daphne and Cam. They are perpetually asking and investigating into just how this relationship between them works. Sitting across that brunch table, they're always wondering how they can project as so perfect and lovey-dovey and, above all else, happy. And both come to the conclusion that there's Something rotten in Italy. But in a tearful, marijuana-laden monologue from Daphne in the Chateau, it's revealed that she is, of course, all the wiser about her husband's infidelity. She knows that this man is uh, sleeping around outside of the relationship. They have a understanding that an element of mystery must be sustained between them. So she lets her husband go ahead and do as his dick pleases while she is treating herself to luxurious erotic massages from her personal trainer and maybe bearing his children. 
And because of this lively, unspoken spark of eroticism that they're both left to individually cultivate without the pressing fear of true, honest monogamy. Mahogany? Did I just say mahogany? Oh my god. Monogamy. Not mahogany. <laughs> because they're not so... <laughs> because they're not so fucking worried about how important and religious it must be to experience the beauty of monogamy, this fantastic creation of the 20th and 21st century that chases me down to my grave, because they're not worried about it, and because they allow for their passions to lead them privately in different directions from time to time, this alleged facade of a happy relationship between them turns out, in fact, to be no facade at all. Listen, I'm happy to respect anyone in a monogamous relationship. I'm more than happy to clap and applaud for your bravery and your self-censorship and your ability to police your own erotic drives. You know, a little round of applause for you. But... Let's look at the state of marriage in 2022. It's no longer that half of people divorce or something like that. It's that everyone ends up like Harper and Ethan, fucking miserable and deceitful to themselves as they imagine that they're elevated above everyone else because they maintain their moral code. If maintaining a moral code was so successful and light-bringing in our in our world, then why are they so fucked up? If all it took was a moral sense of justice and ethics, why are Harper and Ethan arguably some of the most miserable monstrosities on this whole creation? Now, I'm not saying everyone has to, you know, go out and cheat on their spouses or whatever. I don't care what you do in your free time, but... What I am saying is that this show objectively depicts that those who listen to their instincts and explore the depths of what they want are those who end up happiest. I've seen plenty of people try to refute this reading of the show by uh, particularly referencing a certain scene in the final episode in which Daphne and Ethan have a conversation Daphne and um, Ethan are sitting on the beach after Ethan has had a violent confrontation with Cam about the potential of infidelity between their spouses. And while they sit there in this beautiful baking sun, she tells him that there's no use in worrying about what one doesn't know because there is always the potential for exploring deeper inside of your own wills. So what if your wife cheated on you? What do you know about yourself? What do you know about what you truly want? Everyone who critiques this scene says that it's something about the look in her eyes that tells the audience that this relationship is not supposed to be so glamorized. But anyone who's truly in touch with what it means to be horny will look into those eyes and see, in fact, a well of pleasure and potentially untapped 
frontiers of newfound sublimity. When we watch Ethan and Daphne thereafter depart for an island walking just semi-distant from each other, we're not sure if they go to this little island of screw or not. And that same mystery, the precise mystery that exists between Daphne and Cam's relationship, is what leads to the show's most profound and touching moment. Imbued with curiosity about his own erotic spirit and liberated from the shackles of what he imagines society expects of him, Ethan is able to finally fuck his wife. And it's the most beautiful scene in the show. It's so beautiful that I cried watching it. (laughs) Because the audience is accosted with the reality that they'll never know what happens between Ethan and Daphne on the island, when we finally see Ethan take his wife... Oh my god, it's so touching. It's so touching. They shatter the porcelain head of promiscuity that has been spiking the show throughout the wary eye of our social world that glares upon us for transgressing it they shatter it ethan knocks it aside to bang his wife and it breaks into a million pieces on the floor and if you're watching this and don't realize that what it's saying is that we have to destroy these systems in the name of truly feeling the greatest extents of our spirit, then I can't help you if you've listened to me tell you what it means and you still don't get it. Because I'm right about this. It's just... Ugh. Like I said, I cried watching that scene. And... um It's so lavishly filmed. It feels like a Renaissance painting in the beautifully realized details of Ethan's flexing ass muscles as he penetrates his wife and renews this system of sexuality. Sans any ridiculous mannerist, postmodern, social justice, garbage shoot, Star Wars, trash compactor nonsense. It's all eliminated with the broken porcelain head so let's go to our next sign from above here our next symbol of faith in the world and our optimistic proof that we can make something good of this it's the hookers (gasps) the hookers retrospectively i actually think the hookers are easier to uh, understand than Daphne and Cam, but I'm too late into recording to uh, redo any of that, so we're just gonna go with it. The Hookers, which is really actually just the hooker, Lucia. Um, She brings her friend Mia into this world as she floats around the White Lotus, um, doing escort jobs, banging men in their hotel rooms, uh, sitting lonely at the bar and demanding payment after whatever uh, victim she's taken into her Black Widow's nest is finished. Lucia, as played by, oh my god, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen on television, Simona Tabasco. I really hope Tabasco is just pronounced like the sauce, and I'm not saying something stupid here, but the way she's dressed is like some resurrection of the 80s crossed with the one-in-a-million good instincts that Zoomers have. She wears these 
fantastic, glistening, sparkling outfits that hug every curve of her breast and her waist and her hips and turn her into a truly Renaissance painting that, oh my god, even I wanted to fuck her watching this. In comparison to dowdy Portia, who dresses with the uh, very icon-focused, image-heavy, self-awareness, zoomer, post-irony, TikTok bullshit with um, pop art graphic tank tops. You blow all of that shit out of the water, and here we have just one little glittering sequined dress, and when Lucia wears it, she is so ravishing. I have to belabor her beauty because it's essential to what the show is making with her. Virtually every male character at one point or another on this program has his way with Lucia, the only exceptions being the grandfather and Ethan. When you look as stunning, when you resemble a Titian painting removed of all the fat and manliness in those figures' bodies, you get a Lucia, and she is truly irresistible. The common instinct towards someone who looks as fascinating as she does is to bestow her with tragedy. We're all familiar with David Lynch and Fire Walk With Me and uh, its fundamental depiction of the depravity behind uh, youthful beauty. But Mike White pointedly recognizes that being a sex object and being uh, turned into a literal commodity has its benefits as well. There's a fabulously well-developed red herring that kind of uh, persists the back end of the episodes where we are led to believe that perhaps Lucia is in some dire trouble and owes tens of thousands of dollars to some pimp. Uh, We see her kind of shaken around and yelled at in Italian by some guy, and the Italian-American family is convinced that she is in dire peril, basically all three of them. This is the precise moment that basically any other show would take the easy route and depict the horrors of sex work. (laughs) Any other show, and basically every other show up until this point, has uh, seen a woman who has it all. She's beautiful in her bedazzled dresses and the only thing that can come to her is violent, torturous rape and death. But of course the White Lotus knows better than that. Mike White understands that when you look as good as you do and you can capitalize on the industry of desire instead of resigning to be some infinite victim to it, you can have absolutely anything you want in the world. The universe is your pearl. And, you know, to clarify myself once again, I'm not recommending that all of you women out there go and transform into prostitutes overnight. Although, if I was in your shoes, I would have done that about three years ago. What I'm saying is that if you can resist the urge to sink into the melt of whining femininity and infinite Laura Palmer tragedy about whatever condition it is you're convinced you have... 
if you can surmount all of that and instead embrace Paulian Amazonian woman warrior creed, then you can become like Lucia. And like, girl, look at what she has at the end of the show. It basically ends on her frolicking through the streets, suddenly rich. Uh, Wisely, the patriarchs of this Italian-American family warn Albie before he uh, gets really sucked into this lie of a pimp threatening her and ends up convincing his father to donate tens of thousands of dollars uh, before, you know, all of that we're told specifically, you need to know that women can be evil too. This is literally written into the script. And it's not written into the script to characterize women as, uh, like, black banshees that have come to Earth to ruin all mankind. It's more to be aware of their power. Because if you're as smart and beautiful and aware of your agency as Lucia is then all you have to do is cast your life and describe it in more glamorous terms and present yourself in the right way. Take your foolish lover beneath the moon and put a hand to your temple as you complain about your imminent death. And all of a sudden, you and your bestie are going to be frolicking around, rolling in money, and everything's going to be perfect. Or, I mean, you could just take the Harper philosophy to life and start crying all the time about how bad things are. That's your prerogative. But if you needed additional proof, just look at Mia, the previously uninitiated slut who is uh, very innocently and wholesomely dreaming of becoming a singer. And as soon as she's turned on to the power of prostitution, she follows suit right away. And by screwing the lesbian manager of the White Lotus, she's able to uh, put herself on at least uh, one slim road to stardom. I spent a lot of this episode talking about how I feel that sexuality has been trapped by the conditions of whatever sort of system we're living in right now. But the thing is, is that even if you recognize the system and see that it's harmful in some way, you have to be intelligent and powerful and willful enough to take advantage of it and use it to your own system. Create your own system. Understand what you want and then take the things that are both stacked for and against you and then utilize those things instead of screaming and crying about it. The show deals no, like, redemptive justice on these girls for being whores. There's no moment where there's a bleak, frightening darkness that's chasing them. It's all fake. Because these women have actual agency over their pussies. And by rubbing those pussies against the objects that they need to, they get money. They get success, and they get power. Sexuality is not something to be feared, but rather is something to be harnessed for your own benefit. Girls, are we getting the point yet? We're almost two hours in. I'm still talking about this, and I'm not even done. Because I really have to make sure you fucking get this, okay? We can't keep living in this trad cat screaming shrill nonsense of... 
sex, no sex before marriage and a frowning upset attitude towards non-monogamy and fear about sex work and all this bullshit. We have to shed it off and turn this into something real, okay? And I won't take no for an answer. We are too late and too entwined in all of this shit. And we have to get out right now. Time is of the essence. Straight people. And because time is of the essence, that means we have to get to the White Lotus's most confounding question. It's most difficult statement to swallow that I have seen uh, only maybe two or three people successfully get up to this point. And that question is of the, quote, sinister gaze, unquote. If you thought the Umfi menace wasn't bad enough, let me tell you, it got a whole lot worse during the fucking release of the season 2 finale of The White Lotus, directed and written by Mike White. Basically, for like three days straight, I was subject to the most obnoxious heterosexuals on my timeline, reveling in the fact that the White Lotus was, quote, based, unquote, enough to critique the institution of satanic homosexuals who ruin the world and corrupt with its perversions and blah, 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 blah. Suck my dick. Suck it. Eat it on a fucking plate, honestly, because all of you idiots are wrong about this, as usual. No matter what you fucking do in this world, there's always some account with an inexplicably high number of followers who's furious about Balenciaga and the cold of gays and can't watch a fucking TV show to save their lives and understand what it goddamn means. But not to worry, straight people with way too much to say on the internet, you morons. A 26-year-old cross-dresser in Japan is here to tell you what this fucking show means because you're all too retarded to figure it out on your own. Sorry, did I get a little carried away? I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, so to give context to the presence of homosexuals on The White Lotus Season 2, the returning character of Tanya, as played by the endlessly memed Jennifer Coolidge, Basically, her husband goes on a mysterious work trip back home and abandons her in Sicily all of a sudden. And who comes to take her and her lowly assistant in but a clique of very fashionable, interesting, charismatic gay men who suddenly give her life new meaning. Having already plumbed the deepest wells of her psychological turmoil... Tanya is enraptured to be suddenly surrounded by these astetes who not only love life, love drinking, love partying, and love beautiful, expensive things, they also love her. 
And they don't only lavish her with cocaine and the times of her life and fabulous people to mingle with, bottomless black holes of alcohol that she cannot refrain from swallowing down like some alcoholic swine. Above all else, they lavish her with a new sense of desire. Tanya, being the ignorant straight woman that she is, has no idea that she maintains a fabulously camp appeal. Women are often wont to ignore the fact that their hysterical tragedies are funny, amusing little skits to gay men. And her and her big body and her overly dressed form as she whines and talks way too much about herself, she's completely ignorant to the fact that she is playing into all of these homosexual fantasies. Not for a lack of them trying to tell her explicitly as much. It's not like they take her to an Italian opera, tell her that they uh, are reminded of her by the fatally doomed protagonist of Modern Butterfly, and then are going to cast her in that role in their own social circle. It's definitely not like they do that, except for the fact that they literally do. And it's also not like they quite clearly define their entire philosophies to her. It's not like they are sitting in front of her, telling her that life revolves around beauty, and dying for beauty is what's most important in the world, that beauty triumphs over all else, and anyone who's in the way of that must be executed or harnessed for our own personal benefit, said, of course, smoking a Marlboro Red cigarette, my personal tobacco of choice. Yeah, it's not like they do any of that, except for that they fucking do. Like, three times on this fucking show. I said earlier that the White Lotus is, like, quite subtle in the way that it secretly packages these little nuggets of reactionary politics towards people, but apparently I'm wrong about that because... They are bludgeoning you people over the head with this kind of thing, and you all can't see it. No matter how many scenes there are of gay men telling Tanya exactly what's going to happen to her, heterosexual audiences with their bovine glares, for some reason, cannot perceive this. It's like the way that dogs and humans can hear different pitches, like dogs can hear higher noises. It's like... Straight people watch this show and they are biologically incapable of detecting the lower pitch that's telling them exactly what's going on. Except for the fact that this is, this pitch is being conducted with a fucking sledgehammer. In the words of my fabulosa legend, Darian Lake, I'm going to say this very slowly so you can understand. This show is not about evil gays. It's about powerful gays. The White Lotus is stuffed with people who are miserable about their own conditions. I've already gone through the turmoils of basically all of them. Everyone is upset, they are despondent, and things are bad. And so far, there are two parties that aren't so bad. People who embrace passion and sex and wield arrows to create better lives for themselves. 
that being Cam and Daphne and the two hookers. And then there's, uh, hmm, I don't know. There's, like, one large presence in the show that's, like, there for half of it that might also be successful in capitalizing on their desires. Oh, my God, it's the gay people. It's not like the show kept showing that to me over and over again. But I am serious about this. Like, when it comes to depicting people who are happy and content, the only people are the couple between Daphne and Cam, the hookers, and the gay people. There is, of course, some conflict within the homosexuals. They are running out of money, and their lives are defined by frighteningly intense impressions of beauty. But nonetheless, they are some of the only people having fun on this show. And The White Lotus is a fun program. It's, like, fun to watch. And when you watch people having fun, when you watch these manicured sequences of Italian pop music rolling over gay guys chatting with each other, looking good in their swimsuits, having sex, being joyful, um, if you're not putting one and one together, then you're missing the point. When it comes to The White Lotus... Just look to any character that is happy or having fun or is satisfied because those characters are very rarely punished. In the first season, the most idiotic, carefree, dumb knucklehead is the uh, husband played by Fran from Girls uh, who just rolls through his life like a steamroller, plowing down pavement, uh not understanding that women want anything more than fucking and doing charity work for a husband, those characters are the ones who are least punished. And season two contradicts that just a little bit, because, of course, uh, anyone who's watched the season knows that they all die (laughs) at the end. But you're missing one little thing, which is that this season of The White Lotus is an Italian opera. And if any of you have any experience with gay men, you'll know they love nothing more than a fierce, cunty little twirl on the grave. They love to die. They love giving their meaning and their quest for the most perfected state of pristine beauty. They love sacrificing their life to it. And they will tell you... They will, they will tell you as much. That literally happens in the show. As this fucking faggot is talking to Tanya about his worldview, about how he would die for beauty. It's his only Achilles heel. Do you think that when he quite literally dies beautifully in the most fascinating, glimmering moment of camp in the whole show, do you think that That's not on purpose? Are you dumb? The purpose of gay men on this program are to demonstrate that a passionate life, while tumultuous, is one that leads to unprecedented aesthetic layers of ecstasy. 
these gay men, despite any, you know, little money fiscal problem that they have, despite their manipulative and uh, scheming ways and their lack of morality, these are the only characters on screen, with a few exceptions, who are having any fun. And when they are ultimately punished for transgressing against the straight world, you're just playing into their plot. They all wanted to die for what they have to do. So when Tanya discovers that these gay men are plotting an assassination on her so that they can raise enough money based off of her uh, her will to uh, fix up their Italian estate and hold it down, they are literally dying for beauty. And if we still aren't lucid enough, Tanya executes these people like fucking blind Bjork in Dancer from the Dark. It's sloppy and messy and intense and exciting. But when she has to do the most basic thing in making her escape, she's already killed all of these men. It's all over. When she has to make the most basic, obvious step in this whole thing, she's morphed into a parody because she can't simply jump into the water and swim into the boat. She has to awkwardly lower herself off this yacht that she's been held captive on and jump under the speedaway boat. Uh, But instead of doing that, she trips and knocks her head on the bar and then drowns in the water and is the corpse of the season. And if that isn't humiliating enough, some of her last words before she foolishly turns herself into a clown by drowning like a bitch in the water, she says, I can do this. Uh, No, you can't. You still lose. And all that money's still going to go to your faggot husband. And if, oh God, I keep saying and if, and then like elaborating more. But when like she shows up and is like, after she like has shot this guy in the chest, she can't like you know, ask in earnesty, like, what was this all for? Like, why, like, why, like, how could you be so cruel? Like, the selfish dog that she is, she says, was Greg cheating on me? (laughs) Girl, that's a clown. Honey, it's giving Perot. Jennifer Coolidge is fabulous in this role, by the way. Uh, She gives it 100% and completely transforms into this character that is, like, such a you know, humiliated pooch. But the reason I bring up all of these gay characters and their misrepresented arc as uh, punished uh, Satanists who are getting what they deserve for upholding a secret cabal. Girl, no, it's not about that. What this is about is that gay men are powerful and menacing. The scene in which we find out that the alleged... Uh, cousin and uncle, I think that's how that relationship works, when they're fucking each other, when it's shocking on screen, it's not shocking out of, like, disgust. It's shocking out of menace. Because after several episodes of people who are so bound up in their rules, to see people being so libidinous and free, it is overwhelming. And suddenly, gay sex takes on a quality that we haven't seen in films since maybe cruising. It's not just uh, cartoonish and dumb and awkward and Billy Eichner bros. 
it's menacing because it's powerful and it suggests an agency and a will to live beyond that which any of the heterosexual characters have portrayed on screen thus far. So despite their execution and despite what the Twitter timeline or anyone else has told you, gay men are resuming their roles as cultural architects of the feminine and beyond here. They understand that Tanya is an Italian opera character. They know that she's uh, just unaware enough to completely be blind to what's happening around her. And so they cast her in the part, and they turn her life and her eventual death into a moving piece of metafictional power. Because when she does die, Mike White isn't so cruel as to just let that dumb clown drown in the water. He gives her an extended, beautiful, operatic sequence of where her corpse floats about. And the gays have won again. They turn to the presence of a camp woman who can't ever truly understand what she means. The gays, Mike White included, have repurposed this failure of a heterosexual woman into an infinitely more glittering piece of art. I'll never forget that shot of her in the dark water. Just bloated enough, but imbued with so much grandiosity that no one else but a homosexual could have ever transfigured her with. And so here we are at the ending of the show. Homosexuals, uh, no matter if they're alive or not, have successfully repurposed the entire existence of a woman. Passionate, free-living Unbridled sexuality has transformed the relationship of a stagnant, woke couple who hate each other, and it's given two hookers enough power to virtually control their own worlds. You know, we've we've gotten a little bit distant from my original idea of uh, looking back at Italian art from the 16th century towards now and seeing what it all means, but... Secretly, I think we haven't at all. Mike White's The White Lotus is merely an application of what Italian erotic instincts can do for all of us. If you apply these historic homosexual figures who have been making art about women and men and depicting human flesh in a specifically homosexual gaze for now uh, going on 500 fucking years, if not longer than that, we can liberate ourselves from mannerist self-governance. We do not have to drown in context and history and reference forever. If we merely look into our own genitals and let those pioneer us into riveting new futures and leave it towards the broken gay people to do the artistic organizing, there is hope for the lost heterosexual lambs wandering about in neoliberalism, cuckooing and cuckooing about whatever it is they're supposed to do and getting upset about politics, we can still free them. 
All you have to do is turn your head a little bit towards the lifestyle of the Italians from the Venus of Urbino confronting you with her sexuality to even the mannerist art which, despite its endless referentialism, still managed to impart a serious feeling in its onlooker onto Venus, Cupid, and Adonis, where we see the inevitable truth of what desire means and just how powerful that can be on our souls to call me by your name, where we generally surrender these rights of the homosexual and then back finally towards White Lotus, where we can at last liberate ourselves from the gays let them organize us artistically and then just embrace our boners and wet pussies until something beautiful and productive happens between our interpersonal relationships once again. Thinking about how we're going to synthesize everything into a one collective mission towards passion, the only idea I have is to quote a fabulous Italian-American woman. I'll read the quote for you. Rocket number nine, take off to the planet. To the planet. Venus. Aphrodite lady, seashell bikini. Garden panty. Venus. Let's blast off to a new dimension. In your bedroom. Venus. Aphrodite lady, seashell bikini. Get with me, Venus. I can't help the way I'm feeling. Goddess of love, please take me to your leader. I can't help, I keep on dancing. Goddess of love. Goddess of love. Goddess of love.